Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Today, Season 5, Episode 1, The Battle of the Madak Pocket. In the autumn of 1993, Canadian soldiers of the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry found themselves in an overnight firefight with Croatian soldiers as the Canadians sought to protect Serbian civilians from ethnic cleansing. This battle was covered up by the government and today is still a little-known episode, though stands as one of the most important events in Canadian peacekeeping history. The book recommendation for this episode is The Ghosts of Medak Pocket by Carol Off. This book was published in 2004 by Random House and is a well-established collection of interviews and understandings giving a full breadth of the events that took place in the autumn of 1993 leading up to the Battle of the Medak Pocket. Now our story takes place in the former state of Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia was formed at the end of the First World War in the aftermath of the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The country, Yugoslavia, was a multi-ethnic nation with a variety of languages, religions, cultures, and ethnicities. The two largest of these groups were the Croatians and Serbians. Both groups speak different versions of the same language known as Serbo-Croat. One of the many differences between the two groups, however, is religion, with most Croatians being Roman Catholic and most Serbians being Eastern Orthodox. Besides these two linguistic and religious differences, there are also a variety of cultural nuances that separate the two groups. Yet, the two groups lived side by side throughout the territory known as Yugoslavia. At times, the two groups were peaceful with one another, even seeing Croats and Serbians intermarry, while during periods of tension, the communities would often engage in violence against one another. Now, in the aftermath of the Second World War, a new communist Yugoslavian state was formed, replacing the older monarchical Yugoslavia. 
This new communist Yugoslavia was ruled by the iron fist of Marshal Josip Tito, and he oversaw the creation of eight provincial republics which contained the many different peoples of Yugoslavia. Under the strict and heavy-handed rule of Tito, it seemed that these various groups within the new communist Yugoslavia were able to get along relatively peacefully. However, when Tito died in 1980, the political system within Yugoslavia began to fall apart, with each provincial republic clamoring for independence. By 1990, Nationalist groups in all the provincial republics were winning in their provincial elections, and the Yugoslavian state began to crumble apart. In 1991, the republics of Slovenia and Croatia seceded and formed their own states, and others were soon to follow. Now, 1991 was the beginning of the end of the former Yugoslavia. But there was significant tension over the ethnic composition of all these new republics. The big concern was the fate of the minority groups in each of these breakaway republics. Particularly relevant to our discussion today is what would be the fate of Serbians living in the new Croatian state or the fate of Croatians living in what was looking more and more to be a new Serbian state. Many nationalist groups saw the future of their republics being ethnically pure, i.e. the new Croatia being only composed of Croatians, and expectations were that other groups would bow to Croatian dominance or leave. This ethnic tension became the catalyst for war as various paramilitary and state militaries sought offensive action to either protect minority groups in certain regions or to remove minority groups from the new republics. Thus, by the summer of 1991, the demand for independence, coupled with significant ethnic tension, resulted in the beginning of a near-decade-long process of fighting, reconciliation, and fighting, known collectively as the Third Balkan War, or the Yugoslavian Wars. By 1992... The fighting had intensified, and it was at this point that the United Nations and NATO both authorized and supported the deployment of peacekeepers into the region to stop the fighting so that peace settlements could be reached. This operation was known as the United Nations Protection Force, or UNPROFOR. Particularly concerning to the United Nations were reports of ethnic cleansing by all sides. Now, at this time in Canada, many Canadians openly embraced Canada's 20th century legacy of peacekeeping, and it was no surprise to many that a Canadian contingent was to be sent to the region. It was believed that Canadians were natural peacekeepers, and that peacekeeping was in fact an effective solution to tense regions around the world. This quote-unquote peacekeeping myth played heavily into the expectations of government and military officials regarding the Canadian deployment into the former Yugoslavia. For most Canadians and Canadian soldiers, the general expectations were that the peacekeepers would arrive and through sheer will impose order 
on what was thought to be a fairly clear and discernible war containing bad guys and good guys. What they found instead was a complex and confusing mix of state militaries, paramilitaries, faux militia, all fighting each other in a convoluted political arena. In many instances, this fighting was less soldier-on-soldier and more focused on the murder and terrorizing of civilians while forcibly removing many of them from different areas in order to create ethnically homogenized regions. For the Canadian soldiers that arrived in Yugoslavia, it quickly became difficult to find any side that was not guilty of human rights abuses. The Croatians and Serbians were both guilty of such abuses. In particular, the two groups had been especially focused on a stretch of land in southern Croatia where a large number of Serbians had lived for generations. By the winter of 1991, Serbian forces had occupied large chunks of this southern Croatian territory when a ceasefire was agreed upon. In order to ensure the ceasefire was obeyed, UN peacekeepers were inserted into this region between the two sides to act as a buffer while negotiations for a permanent end to hostilities were launched. Yet, in 1993, Croatian forces broke the ceasefire in a surprise offensive to recapture the territory lost to Serbian forces back in 1991. This region, this broken ceasefire, and this peacekeeping mission became the backdrop for the Battle of the Medak Pocket. On 15 September 1993, 2nd Battalion PPCLI, roughly 875 soldiers, a 60 to 40 mix of regulars and reservists, along with two French Army mechanized units, all under the command of Canadian Lieutenant Colonel James Calvin, were ordered to interject themselves in front of the advancing Croatians in a small region around the town of Medak. In the area were roughly four Serbian villages with four to five hundred Serbians still living there. What the Canadians saw when they entered the area unsettled them. A series of empty villages with destroyed and burnt houses and infrastructure. It was obvious the Croatians were conducting some sort of campaign of terror against the Serbian civilians in the region. More unsettling was the complete lack of any civilians in the areas at all. The civilians were gone. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Now, Lieutenant Colonel Calvin understood 
that the Canadians needed to protect the remaining Serbian civilians in the area, and thus ordered his Canadian and French soldiers to advance into positions directly between Croatian forces and the remaining Serbian villages. In fact, the Canadians were actually occupying Serbian-built defensive positions from back in 1991. Almost immediately, Upon entering into this de facto no-man's land, the Canadians came under fire from Croatian forces. This included mortar fire, machine gun, and rifle fire. Captain Tyrone Green was a lieutenant with the PPCLI at the time. Here he is in a 2002 CBC documentary talking about taking fire in those first moments. Our UN flags were on antennas that were tied down, and... Um, so when the first time we got fired, as we were just breaching through the Serb lines to come out, um, we thought, well, maybe they don't really notice as she went. So we, we, we let the antennas go up to show the flag. And the we rec- flag. Yeah, and we received more fire. So we decided, well, we got this big flag that was like the size of a bed sheet that we had flying above the Badak house. We'll put that up. And then there's not going to be any way that they're not going to notice um, its UN forces. So we did that and uh, put the big UN flag up. And then we started taking anti-aircraft fire in the direct role. So they knew it was UN, and uh, we were trying to push forward. Why would the Croatians fire on the Canadians, you ask? Well, part of it was the general UN response to hostile actions so far in the peacekeeping mission. Simply put, earlier that year, Croatian soldiers had fired upon a peacekeeping force holding a power dam and water reservoir near Perucha Lake. Instead of firing back, the UN force was ordered to retreat. Thus, it is likely that the Croatian commander figured the Canadians would be forced to back down once fired upon, and the Croatians could then advance against the remaining Serbian villages. The Croatian commander was wrong, and it would cost him. For the next 15 hours, through the night of September 15th into the early morning of September 16th, the Canadians returned fire, utilizing their strong defensive positions, small arms, and the French 20mm cannon to neutralize the Croatian heavy guns. The Croatians attacked multiple times, each time trying to outflank the Canadian position and each time being repulsed with losses. Colonel Calvin talked about the battle back in 1998 during a speech, and I want to read an excerpt from it here. Calvin says, At 1,200 hours, our two companies, Charlie Company on the left and one of the French companies on the right, started moving forward past the Serb tanks and infantry and into the zone between the two front lines. This area between the two front lines varied. Sometimes it was 400 meters apart, sometimes 1,200 meters apart. But you can appreciate that if each side had now taken the point of terrain that was the most tactically sound to defend, the terrain that was in between them was what we normally refer to as a killing zone. And that was the area into which we were moving the Canadians and the French. 
When we passed by the Serb front lines, we started being fired on by the Croatians. Initially, it was one round, two rounds. We honestly thought it was a mistake, and we gave direction to put bigger UN flags on our antennas and make sure the white vehicles were prevalent so that they would know who was moving into the no-man's land between the two front lines. When we did that, they started firing machine guns at us instead of single rounds, and it became evident that this was not an accident, but actually a concentrated attempt to fire at the United Nations. The Canadian and the French soldiers started taking the normal actions when you're fired on. They started responding in kind. And for the next 15 hours, between roughly 1 p.m. and 8.30 a.m. the following morning, the Canadians and the French were in what was basically a combat situation with the Croatian army at ranges of 150 to 800 meters. In terms of firefights, I'm saying they were fired upon by 20mm cannon, heavy machine guns, rocket-propelled grenades, and they responded with all of the inventory they had. 50 caliber machine guns, their own C7s, C9 machine guns. They fired back everything except our major anti-armor system. Now, just a reminder, folks, before we continue, if you go to our Facebook page or website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time, well, Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations. So if you want to donate two bucks for every episode we publish, well, Patreon allows you to set that up. PayPal has actually also figured out a monthly donation option. So if you just want to give us five bucks a month, every month, you can set that up through PayPal. We survive exclusively on your donations. And every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. As well, on our Facebook page and on iTunes, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy. So, as you just heard, Colonel Calvin has described a full-out battle in the territory of southern Croatia between Canadians, French soldiers, and Croatian counterparts. By the morning of the 16th of September, the Croatian commander realized he could not dislodge the Canadians and agreed to a ceasefire. The agreement was that the Croatians would abandon the area and allow the Canadians to advance beyond the Serbian villages currently within the Croatian-occupied zone. However, the deadline for the Croatian military withdrawal passed. As Kelvin waited for the Croatians to pull back, gunfire erupted from behind the Croatian lines, and smoke could be seen rising in the distance. It was obvious to the Canadians that the Croatians were attacking the Romanian civilian population while relying on the delay to keep the Canadians from interrupting. Kelvin was fed up and decided a different approach was needed other than brute strength. He gathered together with him every reporter in the area and held an impromptu press conference right at a Croatian roadblock defending the Croatian front lines. Here is a clip from that press conference again from that same CBC documentary. 
Today we moved up at 1,200 hours precisely, and we found mines on the road and still uh, anti-tank roadblocks uh, blocking our path. The Croatians made a big show of moving the mines and the anti-tank uh, barriers, but now they are refusing to allow us passage, indicating that yet one more army commander and another army commander must be here to help guide us into position. At some stage, you got to cut the bullshit and get on with the job. And all I've heard right now from the Croatian people at my level here is a bunch of half-baked excuses aimed at delaying us from getting on with the operation. In the end, it was not bullets nor brawn that won the day, but the potential for negative public attention on Croatian activities in the region. Shortly after Calvin's press conference, the Croatians actually began their real withdrawal. It was finally completed on the 17th of September. Tragically, the Croatians had been given enough time to carry out their ultimate deadly plans. When the Canadians finally entered the area formerly occupied by the Croatian forces, they found absolute horror. Destroyed villages, wells poisoned with dead animal and human carcasses, women, men, children, the elderly, shot and deposited in shallow graves in the forests. Craig King led one of the sweep teams through the destroyed villages. Here he is talking about his first grisly discovery and warning. This contains some very, very disturbing content. The first little hamlet that we came to was uh, we deployed the infantry out to form a cordon. We um, had the engineers go in to check for mines and to ensure that the structures were safe to enter and then we started you know calling for people um, and there was no one Craig King had discovered two young women in a basement tied to chairs and burnt to death they were in a terrible state and if you've ever smelled uh, burnt flesh you'll never forget it the rest of your life uh, and uh, it was a very sad event taking them out of there um, the uh, the body parts were sort of strewn about. This is uh, we loaded them, uh, charred and all, into these body bags, and I I, th- I think their their remains were still so hot that they melted um, some of the you know plastic of the the body bag. Um, the guys were handling them with gloves and everything like that, and there were bits falling off as we were you know, loading them in. It's it just God, it was horrific. Um, my driver uh, used a whisk broom and a, and a scoop that we had in the Jeep to pick up some of the fingers and things like that. I mean, it was goddamn awful. Ethnic cleansing had come to the Medak pocket, and the Canadians were now witnesses to this terrible atrocity. In the aftermath of the operation, several members of the Croatian military were charged by the International Crime Tribunal for former Yugoslavia. Mirko Norac was the commander of the Croatian Medak operation and was found guilty. His sentence was commuted to one-year jail time by a Croatian court. Rahim Ademi, commanding officer of the Croatian military district that included the Medak pocket, 
was acquitted of his crimes. The Croatian government's response was that whatever happened in the Medak region was revenge for earlier Serbian ethnic cleansing operations against Croatian civilians. And of course, proof of that has also been uncovered. Incredibly, the Canadian government attempted to cover up the operation. You see, the progressive conservative government under Kim Campbell was on the brink of an election and thought the Madak battle would simply add negative press to a political party that was already facing a tough election campaign. The battle was swept under the rug. In the late 1990s, however, reports and pieces began to finally surface in the public realm. But even today, it is often referred to as Canada's secret battle. Nonetheless, recognition was eventually given. Colonel Calvin was awarded the Meritorious Service Decoration for his handling of the battle and the post-battle drama. And in 2002, the PPCLI received the newly created Commander-in-Chief Unit Commendation. To this day, the Croatian government denies that the battle ever took place and claims no knowledge of the 27 Croatian casualties that were inflicted on the attacking Croatian forces. And the Medak pocket area remains almost entirely depopulated. Ghost villages inhabited by the ghosts of Medak. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in, and stay cool. Stay cool.